Hello again, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to your favourite podcast, the AJ Roberts Show. Today we are joined by another specialist and expert, Dr. Tech Kong. Doctor, how are we? Good morning. Good morning, Andrew. I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for the invitation to speak on your uh, very, very nice studio, I must say. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, gone for a little bit of a change in that. You know, I, like, I like to change things up. My wife's always uh, having a dig at me for... Uh, constant I, I can't just sit still I've, i seem to change things up every like five minutes um, you can congratulate her for me it's really impressive yeah she's uh, she keeps me on my toes um ladies and gents i wanted to get uh, dr T uh, kong on the podcast he's a gp and uh, researcher and an absolute leader in what he does and and i'll let him obviously explain more um he's uk based and does fascinating work and i think like his message and his experience is vitally important to share with you guys uh, around what's been going on over the last couple of years, especially. Um, so, Dr. Kong, uh, if you wouldn't mind, just giving the audience a bit of a broad overview of like your experience and what you're doing now. Well, if I may say, I um, I was a graduate of Sheffield University. I qualified in the late 70s. Um, my initial direction was in hospital medicine. So I went to, uh, to Leeds to what they call a SHO registrar rotation in medicine, which covered various specialties. Uh, I went from there on to uh, clinical research uh, in rheumatology because I, I had a very early interest in pain management. Uh, and I was a research registrar with the Rheumatic Center in Glasgow. Um, that set the, um, the, the trend for me as far as um, interest in medicine went uh, in later life. Um, I went into general practice um, in the 80s and it was quite a, an interesting time because we were in a state of flux. The um, National Health Service was undergoing fairly regular changes, but they were mainly tinkering around uh, administration. Um, when Tony Blair came into government uh, in uh, 1997, we had a health expenditure of around 37, 38 billion pounds. When he left, it was in the 110 billion. And what amazed me was that although there were strikes made in, in the uh, delivery of medicine because of scientific advances all over the world, um, as far as patient access is concerned, it was very patchy. There were some improvements, uh, but there were also some drawbacks. But one of the high points for me was the, uh, the way the National Health Service was uh, being outsourced to private providers. And I remember very clearly Ellen Milburn signed a concordat with the private sector. Uh, and we started engaging with the private sector in a manner that was described as privatization. Um, from my perspective, um, I worked in a, a very poor area of Leicester. Uh, it was one of the bottom 10 poorest is in the country. So I was very conscious of uh, accessibility to good health care for the, the poorer people. Um, so one of the things I did was to understand if the national trend was towards private providers, how could I empower the poorer people to have an equitable status in the changing face of our health service? Because um, the better off we're able to afford um, private health care 
the middling group were in some ways pushing uh, the boundaries in, in a new health service. But the poorer people by and large were left and, and they were left in a way that was exacerbated by the use of financial targets for doctors. So eventually the tripartite compact, which consists of taking money, uh, well, taxation um, from the people, paying the medical profession and the uh, various medical services to look after the people. That compact was distorted by the use of uh, financial incentives. So eventually we find a situation where doctors were either by necessity or by ethos because of the presentation to them, they were guided by money rather than um, the, the need to um, lead in clinical care. And I don't mean this in a very dismissive and, and uh, condemning way of my colleagues. It was the climate. So uh, for example, I found myself in an invidious position where uh, I was actually rated very highly uh, in the newspaper in Leicester Mercury as a very favored doctor. Um, but by the same token, I was scoring very badly so my time was spent in looking after people, but not chasing targets to the extent that I was starting to show uh, what they perceive as a weakness uh, in my performance, when really the performance was measured by financial targets. Um, as far as I was concerned, the, the role of a doctor was to uh, assist the uh, to get the best health care. So my energies and my concentration was on, on the patient. So from that point on, it became my mission in life to actually champion those people who were left behind by a system that was more and more micromanaged to the extent that the values of medicine were corrupted. And we find ourselves, if we fast forward to the present day, we find ourselves um, <clears throat> in, the, in the grip of uh, a political class that's more And that I find very disturbing. So when the uh, pandemic was declared, um, <clears throat> one of the things I noticed was there was a, a remarkable speed at which uh, vaccines were developed. And you know, with my research background, I was particularly uh, conscious of the fact that um, these products, uh, I would call them products at this stage in clinical trials, clinical trials were taken off the clinical trial status and rolled out en masse to the population. And it's not just in this country or America, it's worldwide. So that rung some alarm bells because um, it is quite unusual for a pandemic to be managed virtually exclusively with uh, what is essentially an experimental product. Um, not only that, I found that uh, because it was rushed off, there were certain checks and balances missing. Now, when I conducted clinical trials, excuse me a second. When I conducted clinical trials, they were conducted under very stringent uh, conditions. We would monitor uh, those people who 
accepted to be in a trial uh, with constant monitoring of their vital signs, their biochemistry, their hematology, and whatever is necessary to ensure their safety. And if anything untoward developed, we would obviously act appropriately, take them out of the trial, break the blind to find out what they're on, whether in placebo or the, uh, the product being te tested and so on. But you know, when the uh, vaccine was launched, there was nothing of the sort. We would say to people, if you get COVID, isolate. I think I was about the only GP in a wide area who actually bothered to ring up the patients and say, how are you feeling today? Yeah. So we lack the we lack the follow up. We lack the patient care. We lack the mm. sincerity. Um, regarding the uh, the patient and clin uh, clinician sort of relationships now, that's almost pretty much diminished, hasn't it? Because of the protocols that have been put in place. Um, which has been quite alarming to see. And then, you know, you mentioned obviously the financial incentive side of it, and it's been clear and obvious, hasn't it, over, um, and it's, they've not even hit it, how many doctors have been paid per vaccination that they've given over the last couple of years. And, you know, if you're going to get paid per vaccination, you're not going to be in a rush to see Susan with an ingrowing toenail. <laughs> um, so, you know, I totally get that point. And, it, it, and you're not the first doctor I've had on uh, even you know outside of the UK as well even Dr Peter McCulloch said that he would you know there's nothing wrong with just ringing your patients and seeing how they actually are but that that whole patient and uh, clinician relationships is completely diminished almost hasn't it here in the UK indeed indeed Andrew what I thought was this um, so we have this medication or product that's uh, rolled out to the public uh, upon suspension of clinical trial status um, so we, we vaccinate the people um, with the bearers of information. <clears throat> now, as you know, when we conduct clinical trials, in phase three especially, we give people information upon which they can make a, a sound decision, a freely given decision to say, yes, I will participate or I will not. In this situation, they, there's barely any choice and there's a very strong pressure on them to uh, accept the vaccination. We know there is a, a dearth of safety data. There is hardly an expl any explanation how the, uh, the vaccine works. It is treated as if it's a conventional vaccine, which it's no further from the truth. And we also have a huge cohort of, of, of operators, vaccinators, doctors, who are not allowed to discuss things in a cogent manner. So we have, we have um, people say, oh, this, this should be all right. Or you've had your fir first dose, how was it? And you say, well, I had a bit of problem with this and the other aching and, oh, you'll be all right. The second time it's, it'd be a lot easier. And I overheard this sort of conversation. <clears throat> I think it's very unacceptable, even unethical. So first, the first missing point is uh, a lack of informed consent. And informed consent comprises at least two things. One is to give people adequate information upon which they can make a freely given uh, acceptance. The second is, if they decline, then there should be an offer of what the alternatives are. And the rollout of the vaccine has vastly overshadowed 
any effort to find ways of dealing with COVID. So if you know uh, COVID is not uniformly lethal, we should have spent money, spent time on finding out who are the susceptible people, why and how um, the people are susceptible to various pathologic mechanisms behind it and how we can protect them and how we can treat them even with either novel drugs or established medication, doesn't matter. But the effort, the money seemed to have been spent on the vaccines. Now, once the vaccines have been given out, where in a normal trial situation, you would find out, you would monitor the, the biochemistry, hematology, and so on, as I mentioned, there was a lack of that. Not only was that uh, lack, it was compounded by a very sensorious uh, environment we were not allowed to discuss with colleagues, with people, either on social media, whatever it is. And there was a virtual embargo on any sensible discussion, and that is extremely unhealthy, uh, even dangerous. Science isn't progressed by prohibition, science progressed by inquiry. So I find it very disturbing. So be that as it may, I held a very open view and although I didn't participate in the vaccination program, I continued to see patients. I followed their uh, micromanaged style of uh, new era consultation where you would phone people up. But I would call people in whenever there was any need. When I perceive a need to see them, to understand the clinical presentation better or to establish a diagnosis, I'll call them in. As time went by, I started noticing a relationship between uh, vaccination and the appearance of some very unusual um, clinical presentations. So I would have people saying, oh, I saw Dr. So-and-so with this rash, and it was treated as if it was a fungus, and then it was treated as if it was a, a bacterial infection. Um, but all along, there was some bizarre presentations in people with no dermatological history. Uh, I would come across young people, and there was a celebrated case I reported, I spoke about on uh, LBC. There was a young woman, uh, age 27, who after uh, vaccination developed a very swollen arm. And it wasn't the arm on the side of the vaccination, peculiarly. Um, and so I did uh, various tests, including a D-dimer. Um, because I work only part-time upon uh, early retirement, um, the results came to my colleague and he thought it was very unusual for a very healthy uh, gym fanatic um, to have a D-dimer taken. Anyway, with the presence of mine, he referred her to the hospital. And again, he was, um, was surprised. So, but he again, had the presence of mine, gave her anticoagulation and within three days it settled. But in the interim, she had um, ultrasound um, determination of whether she had thrombosis in her veins and so on. They couldn't find anything because I believe this was not a case of uh, sizable clots, but microthrombi. Um, and since that case, I picked up rather a lot of cases where there were clot formation in various places, some presenting as abdominal pain. So we, we, have, we have a massive problem going forward. Uh, whilst I would not um, uh, condemn the efforts in 
in finding a vaccine to deal with this. I think there are various surrounding mechanisms and uh, support structures that need to be put in place, mm -hmm. certainly in the interest of patient safety. Yeah. Um, so it's to my dismay that, uh, you know, these things, two years on, we still lack. Um, now, I think there's a bit of a climb down because this morning I saw in the news that uh, Sajid Javid said that um, hopefully some of the restrictions will be lifted by March. Yet I was at a meeting on Monday where nurses and physiotherapists, dentists, they were all packed into the meeting room, uh, anxious and distressed about the um, imminent uh, mandate to be vaccinated. Otherwise they would face uh, unemployment. So that's a very draconian measure for people who have dedicated their lives to a vocation of helping uh, the sick and the poor. And I just think it's beyond belief. You, you know as well as I do that these NHS staff, no matter what their role, have for the last two years worked tirelessly throughout all of this. Yes. But not only that, right now, and you know, you've got to bear in mind, I receive tons of DMs and emails every day from yes. doctors and nurses who are speaking out about their frustrations about what's going on and actually describing what's really happening on the ground. Like doctors and nurses across the whole country who are unvaccinated are currently having to like work extra shifts to cover those who are currently sick with COVID who are triple vaccinated um, and often double vaccinated where all the unvaccinated people aren't getting ill with it and they're between now and then uh, being expected to just buckle up and just put up with it um, until such a date where they're going to be struck off. Now, it's not only immoral, unethical and unlawful, it goes against all, like so many human rights, the right to work, um, against so many of the Nuremberg Code. It's almost as if, it's almost as if um, these governments around the world have got like a copy of the Nuremberg Code in one hand and the Declaration for Human Rights in another, thrown them on the floor and just like stamped all over them. Like that's, you know, that that's basically what mm. they're doing and have done for yes. some time now. Um, and it's, it's really, really alarming and, and you know, quite distressing. Um, they've obviously got a plan in place because the 60,000 care workers that lost their jobs, you know, that's Unfortunately, it's like it's almost been forgotten about. But what they're doing is, and we can clearly see it's happening, is they're replacing these care workers with migrants um, who are coming in by the hundreds on a daily basis into the UK. Um, they pretend that they're doing something about it, but they're not. And the migrants are filling their positions. And because they're not UK citizens, and they're not even really trained, they don't have to have the vaccination. So they've, uh, they've removed people from post for not being vaccinated and replacing them with people that don't need to be vaccinated because they're not UK citizens. It's, again, just, it's just non-stop crimes against humanity. Do you know, Andrew, it seems that you can have a complete catalogue of all the, uh, the negative adjectives that can be applied. Uh, the government seems to be carrying these things out with no compunction. The government seems to lack leadership. Um, it doesn't have to follow this worldwide edict of mass vaccination, it can easily, easily break away and show leadership in how mm -hmm. best to do it. But it, it seems to follow sheepishly um, a dictate that comes from a central source. It's a central command that I, I find disturbing. 
yeah. you know, people are treated in a very dispensable way. And there is no, no longer any um, compassion in, in the care. It's, it's all false, it's all artificial. And we have a, we have a huge uh, propaganda war going on where the, the people are so disposable. It is utterly disgusting. Yeah, it really is, and it's um, you know, it's a, it's a daily it's a daily battle. I find to you know get my head around it, and nothing surprises me anymore when you see, especially when it comes from the central commanders who's running things. You can you can clearly see that our yeah. government isn't running the show. But it's, there's like some kind of shadow government which are just yeah. using just using them as puppets, like absolutely. And um, we know it's very much coming from like the towards the top of the pyramid. Um, you know, where you have your, your, your uh, Bill and Melinda Gates foundations and Rockefellers and Rothschild, fam, you know, families and stuff like that. And it all filters down, um, which is what, you know, is happening all around the world. It's, you know, extremely alarming. Um, I think people are only just starting to learn about this now. Um, I'm finding that the way the government here is acting is going in our favour in terms of, like, the amount of people that are now coming to realise and coming to their senses that this is very sinister um, yes. and it's not an interest of the people whatsoever um, which is good for us for, from our perspective um, because we need that to happen we need everybody to start early opening their eyes and seeing what's happened and that unfortunately people have been you know tricked into a medical intervention that was not in their interest whatsoever but actually has caused grievous harm and, and death um, and has led people to do what they're doing around the country you know in terms of creating you know police uh, criminal complaints and that was just what we've done over the last few weeks um and and, and which has been empowered people to do the same around the country which has been you know fantastic but um i mean you you, you said earlier um you you know you witnessed a lot of people coming through with all different types of um ailments from obviously from the vaccines and i know one of the big things that's been quite mm -hmm. frustrating is that and again, I, I get people messaging me every day. I get floods of messages, people saying they're suffering from this or suffering from that or, or someone in their, their families. And their doctors and GPs are refusing to link it to uh, the vaccine when before that they were, you know, perfectly mm -hmm. healthy. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that you've seen quite, quite a lot of that. It's very sad. It's very sad. I think the, the, the blame is not just on the doctors refusing to make a connection um, there is some naivety in believing that the government is right, and there's also uh, uh, a very misplaced trust on the official narrative. Um, but I find most disturbing of all those two other things. On top of that is the censorious attitude that there is a there is no right to speak about it. So my colleagues who are afraid to speak or afraid to make the connection, I think they have. Uh, become very sadly detached from the ethos of medicine, which is the care of a patient. Mm. I mean, I, I was very concerned um, last week when I was on call, well, when I was actually on duty in the hospital, um, a nurse came up to me, a senior nurse said, oh, I'm about to discharge this 15-year-old boy. And um, I said, uh, well, what's wrong? Well, he, he's got some aching chest and he'd been for football training. Um, but I couldn't find anything wrong. I did all the vital signs and even did an ECG and they were all normal. So I started asking about the, uh, the background to this. Well, 
he had COVID at the end of December, isolated for 10 days and uh, felt well. So he went to his football training. He's a, he's a very reasonable, sensible uh, middle-class boy, <clears throat> attended casualty with his mother. But the history transpired that uh, late in September, early October, he had uh, his first COVID vaccination. So I said to the nurse, I think we better do uh, these few important tests and uh, just ask the parent and the, the child to wait in the waiting room and when the results come in an hour's time, we'll deal with it accordingly. An hour, less than an hour passed and the nurse came scurrying to me, uh, to my room and said, oh, you know, those three key tests that you wanted to do, they're all raised, the, uh, the troponin was 10 times above normal, the D-dimer was elevated and the creatine kinase. So she said, well, what shall I do? He said, I said, well, just get, a transfer, get him transferred to, um, to the cardiac unit. She was going to call the registrar down to reassess. I said, there's no time to reassess. I said, every time, when, when she was away, I said, every time the, um, the boy ran for the ball, he got tight in the chest and towards the end of the training session, he became a bit short of breath. Well, setting casualty when he was uh, quite calm, everything seemed all right, the ECG was all right. So here, here we have, here we have a lack of information given to the public about things to look out for. We also have um, a lack of information to the um, uh, healthcare profession who look after patients to, um, to be on the alert and be vigilant to pick these things up. I think these, uh, th this approach, this micromanaged approach is very, very flawed and potentially dangerous. We're seeing it in Australia as well, um, yeah. like more so and on the pressure on the doctors and yes. the nurses. I've got I've got English friends over there who are in, in the healthcare profession, and they've literally just been like told if you talk negatively about the vaccine, you will lose your job, you will get struck off. Yes, yes. Now, if if I'm if if I'm being, you know, forget forget about the, the actual vaccine, like any products, you know, there's products a million times over around the world, right? If you're being asked to advocate a product, like if it was that good, why would you be threatened with your license or your job about it? It just doesn't make sense, does it, whatsoever? Um, and it's threatened with your livelihood and the fact you can't feed your kids if you talk negatively about this product that is now part, very much part of your system. Absolutely right, Andrew, absolutely right. There are huge gaps in the way the policy is presented. It, it assumes a total lack of immunity on our behalf. And, you know, we're not supposed to have our defense mechanisms. Um, there is no other way to treat it. It is uniformly lethal. I mean, for example, um, a few months ago when ITV uh, announced and I was watching the TV with my wife, oh, she said, look, so many thousand cases, 10,000, 30,000 cases, whatever it is, and there were so many deaths. So I instantly drew up my calculator and said, look, here it is. Um, number of deaths divided by a number of positive cases, and it turned out to be 0.28%. And then on another day, the same was done again. Uh, today, there were so many positive cases and there were so many deaths. I said, there again, it's less than 1% again. It's incredible. Um, I think there's a lot of um, disingenuous way of presenting the news and every positive case is drummed up in a very alarming, fear-mongering fashion. It doesn't mean infected, does it? Cases no. don't mean infections. And that's what people just, uh, well, they don't understand the difference. 
I, I, don't, I, I really don't understand how and why this, this uh, huge gap between reality and the seriousness of the condition is being exploited. Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, we've seen it since day one, obviously the behavioural science, the propaganda, the, the NLP being used on the public, uh, especially when it comes to using numbers and graphs and stuff like that. Um, and I was asked, when, when, I, when I read yesterday, like, are they going to lift all restrictions, um, take away, you know, mask wearing and all this kind of stuff. Um, I was hoping to see in there, like, they're going to get rid of their modelers as well. Yes. Um, but that didn't happen because they have got every single thing wrong, like everything. There's nothing that's been right whatsoever since day one. And yet they employ these people as like very highly paid civil servants, um, which have done nothing but scare the public. Like that's all they've done using graphs. Now, people seem to forget it was only some time ago, 14th of December, in fact, they were saying they're expecting 200,000 Omicron cases and it's going to double every day. Um <laughs> I remember doing a social media post where I was saying, if, if that's what their numbers are showing, it's going to double every day, then by New Year's Eve, we're going to have 26.2 billion cases in the UK, meaning that everyone's going to get COVID 374 times in a day. Um, again, it's just all like, well, we know why, because the media is completely bought and paid for by the powers above and they, you know, they do what the hand feeds them. Um, uh, but the fact that they pump out this information and scaremongering statistics is just, I've never seen anything like it in my life, the fact that they could just get away with it. Um, because they've been wrong every single time and far, far, far from the truth. I'm not sure whether you came upon um, an interview that Fraser Nelson reported, that he interviewed um, a chap in the SAGE committee, and he was supposed to model on the worst case scenario and all the uh, government plans and policies were predicated on the worst case scenario, which in the majority never really happened, did it? Well, no, but I mean, you could make up a worst case scenario for everything, mm. anything in life. You could make a worst case scenario. And but if we lived our life like that, is, nothing would get it done. Absolutely. But the sadness is, you know, lives have been damaged. Livelihoods have been destroyed. Where is the, where is the conscience of a government that's supposed to be elected democratically to look after its people. Mm. And that is why I personally, I personally have taken up the offer of being a member of a, a people's party called the Alliance for Democracy and Freedom. Brilliant. I, I'm, not, I'm not here to make enemies of anyone. I'm here to help people restore sanity and normality in their lives. Fantastic. Do, um, do you want to explain a bit about more, more about that uh, alliance and what you're doing? Yes, I mean, um, when the um, Blair policies uh, affected the way my patients access healthcare, I mean, there were people coming to me uh, back in the early 2000s, late 90s, saying, look, um, could you, doctor, please change this NHS referral to a, a private one? And I said, look, it's going to cost an arm and a leg. And so he says, but I can't wait for my my mum or grandmother or granddad waiting for the prostate operation to continue suffering will pay for it. So that encouraged me to look at um, an augmentative um, policy. And I then work with AIG to produce um, a, a special policy price um, well below um, 
the the average because it only kicked in when uh, when there was a um, an inordinate long wait. Anyway, the long and short of it was that showed me that uh, a lot of people depended very heavily on the doctors being the advocate, and I think we should return to that ethos of genuine care. I don't have a problem really, you know, if 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 targets are to be set, they should be set at a level that reflected care and not reflected managerial uh, penchant for uh, for for showing signs of these things. I mean, is, to, to come back to the point, I, I think going forward, um, uh, we, we need to um, be clear where we want the country to be. So following the, the Blair years, um, the early Blair years, I became very disenchanted with the way health policy was managed. So one of my patients um, called Mrs. Pullen. She was a conservative um, counselor. She said, look, if you're so passionate about healthcare, why don't you take up politics? And I had no idea what politics was about. And this is what I want to say to people. Politics is not um, something very esoteric or very difficult to do. It's dead simple. If you've got a, a passion to help people, if, if things that uh, are affecting you in a way that should not be, if policies are upsetting the way you conduct yourself, me, then I think you really need to, um, to do politics. So I was introduced to um, the conservative hierarchy. In those days, I, I couldn't care whether it's conservative or labor or liberal. Uh, all I wanted to do was my, my patients. So I presented a four-page document to, um, to Tony Blair and to, um, at the time, the leader, uh, William Hague. And I was invited to meet with uh, Oliver Heal, in those days as Oliver Heal, uh, chair of the uh, Commons Select Committee on Health. And they liked what they saw. And they said, well, would you like to sit the parliamentary assessment uh, board exam? And I did, and I became a parliamentary candidate for the Conservative Party. But uh, I fell out of favor because I, I didn't spend enough time campaigning. I was a single-handed GP. Um, I also spoke very strongly on Brexit. So I got deleted from the list. Um, I remember Roger Helmer saying, well, if you're so passionate about Brexit, come across to UKIP. And I did. And, um, you know, I, I lost my deposit fighting in the same seat that I helped gain an extra 10,000 majority for my uh, MP. So I thought I'm giving up politics. And then um, I was invited by a group of people that formed this party uh, that got registered on the 20th of August, 2020. Uh, and I like the ethos of it, which is basically, there are no egos. We are here to look after the people's interests. Um, and um, there is a, a wealth of um, election experience, electoral experience, because the members come from all sorts of political backgrounds, but all unified on the basis of serving the people. And that's what I like. I think Absolutely. If, if you're in politics, you're there for the people, you're not there for yourself. Mm -hmm. I, I, and well, I mean, look around us, like, can you see anyone right now who's doing or taking action for the people? Absolutely yeah. none. Yes, none. I think it's, it's very important that we get it right. Uh, you know, Britain was, at the head of 
one of the largest trading blocks um, in the world. And we had the uh, Ottawa uh, Empire Conference back in uh, the early 20s. I think it was, there was one particular one, uh, 1923. And then 50 years on, uh, Britain turned its back against the Commonwealth and entered the EU. And from there on, the, the, the designs and the ambition of the uh, what started off as an economic community became clearer and clearer. So I think we should work on the fact that we can recover our ascendancy. I think Britain should, should take pride in the very long history of uh, leading the world in various uh, advances, technological advances. We can do it and we should do it. And we should do it with the people. And this is what I want to say. Mm that we should have confidence in our country and have pride in our people. We should look after them and they will look after us, look after the country, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And again, um, I, uh, I was quite fortunate to interview uh, Ricardo Bosi from the Australia One Party. Um, he's in a former military man, ex-Lieutenant Colonel. And um, the way his party set up is like really quite interesting. And uh, I find it much better than what we have a, as in a parliamentary level. Uh, and this is just my personal opinion. What I'd like to see is parliament removed um, and have a almost like a round table, uh, a think tank of leading experts uh, who are leading experts in that field. So I don't mean a banker being a health secretary um, exactly. or an economist. I mean a world leading expert in that field um, and then replicate that round table in major either counties or major cities around the country. So you have a sort of centralized think tank and then obviously uh, a sort of round table in each of these major you know, cities or, or counties as well. So for the people, because um, obviously collective that, ideas are so much better. Yes, even that, Andrew, is slightly flawed. In our party, what we have is, unless you're actually... Um, unless you actually have first-line, front-line experience in that specialty, mm. uh, in that sector of industry or whatever it is, then it's inappropriate to put you there. Mm. Um, so I, I personally think, for example, you're quite right, it's no point having a, a history graduate or a, a former postmaster or a banker run the health service. Neither do I think it's appropriate for a doctor to run, say, um, a Ministry of Defence, you know, we, we got we got to have some specialism in in what we do and justifiable experience. Mm. The other thing about the Alliance for Democracy and Freedom is the three words are key to it. So we started supporting independent candidates who do not wish to be under any central ethos um, of a party. That's fine. We don't have a problem as long as the, the theme is about service to the to the people and the community. Uh, that falls within the remit of of this organization. So that's on the alliance part of it. The next part is uh, democracy. We like to establish democracy, re-establish democracy the way it's meant to run. So we have no um, central uh, command system. Uh, it's not for us to whip, uh, say a councillor in Reading, what to say or do for the people in Reading, because if we are based in, at the moment we're based in central England, um, we, we don't know the circumstances there, the situation there, so we, we leave them to decide. And we keep um, a national policy 
to a minimum uh, and it should fit the, the national picture that's suitable for everyone and suitable for our country in the international arena. Mm, absolutely. And um, where can people find more information on the, um, the Alliance Democracy? Uh, yes, it, it's very simple. It's adfparty.uk. adfparty.uk. Yes. Awesome. Um, Dr. Kong, uh, I just want to take this opportunity to thank you for taking your time out of your busy schedule to share your wisdom and in your experience over the last two years, especially um, with the audience. I'm sure many people got a lot out of it and um, it's great to see you uh, advocating so hard for, for the people and being very much part of a, a different party, which is all about that. Um, and it's brilliant for you to you know share about that. And I encourage people um, who are watching to go and check out um, the website that you just shared there, um, adfparty.uk. Uh, I'll obviously put that in the show notes. Um, and because this is where we're at right now, I believe, is that people want to see movement back, you know, very much towards and aligning with these key areas, you know, freedom, democracy, because it's very much being um, eradicated at the minute, not just here, but in other countries around the world. You know, what we're seeing in Australia, New Zealand, Canada is just deplorable. Um, and you know, it is, you know, in your face, downright tyranny um, that we thought we got rid of, you know, in the 40s. Um, uh, I, I'm just seeing countless reports and videos and that of, you know, police and people going around checking people's parties. It's literally 1942 Germany in some of these countries. Mm. So um, for yourself to be aligned and doing great work with that to restore those key British values um, to our nation is, is absolutely fantastic to see. And I'm, I'm really proud to have you on to share that. I just, a thought just crossed my mind, Andrew. Just think about your own personal um, life. If you were shackled, would you be able to achieve even the slightest percentage of what you have done today? Okay. I think freedom, freedom uh, for us to pursue our endeavors is the best way forward for all of mankind and there's no two ways about it 100 mm. exactly that you know if you can't go where you want do what you want say what you want you know you don't have freedom yes simple as that freedom of course freedom with a conscience but freedom mm. yes indeed superb um doctor thanks again for coming on um ladies and gents if you enjoyed today's show uh, i'd really encourage you to share it with your family and friends no matter where you are in the world i'm sure you're taking a lot from it um, Dr. Kong's wisdom is absolutely fantastic and his experience speaks for itself. Um, if you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to my Rumble channel. Um, those of you will be aware that I'm no longer on YouTube. Um, they were, they're were starting to get a bit fed up with me, I think. Um, and uh, so please sub, uh, subscribe to the Rumble and the BitChute channel as well. And please subscribe to my Telegram channel where I'm going to be um, putting a lot more content on there as I move away slightly from sort of Facebook and uh, not so much on Instagram because my accounts are getting hammered with bots. Um, so I'm trying to make obviously the best viewing experience um, and content experience for everybody without all of that aggro. So uh, I'm, most of my content now is going to be on Rumble and on Telegram. So please make sure that you tune in and subscribe to those channels, ladies and gents. Um, look after yourself, boys and girls, and I'll see you very, very soon. Uh, for another awesome episode on the AJ Roberts show.